This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia is from Texas, but before she was a member of Congress, she was a judge who for years played a very important role in Houston courtrooms. It's easy to forget that less than three years ago, Donald Trump withheld weapons from the president of Ukraine, who was worried about defending his country against Russia, in order to pressure Ukraine to get involved in the U.S. election, to insert itself in our media landscape by accusing Hunter Biden of corruption. President Trump essentially said to President Zelensky, unless you help me win the election, I won't give you the equipment you need to defend yourself. Of course, if he was really so worried about American corruption in Ukraine, he could have taken this up with Rudy Giuliani and Paul Manafort, but I digress. The point is, after Trump did this, members of Congress who had been thinking about impeachment for a long time finally made up their minds and said, now's the time. If we don't impeach him now, what standards will be left for the presidency? Will future presidents have any obligation to protect national security at all? When this happened, the Democrats tapped Congresswoman Garcia to actually stand in the Senate and do the work the Constitution requires in cases of impeachment to make the case before the Senate that what the president did warranted removal. Today, with unspeakable suffering happening in Ukraine, we reflected on what that time in history was like with Congresswoman Garcia and also talked about much more. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with real audience questions. For information on how to join us in past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever podcast streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode on Wednesday featuring Congressman Tony Gonzalez, who's also from Texas, about immigration. Our co-founders Justin Higgins and John Gunnison led the interview. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. You've had this long career in public service, and you went up almost every step of the way. Uh, You served at the county level, at the city level, at the state level, and then in the U.S. Congress. Across your long career in public service, did you ever expect that you would be so directly involved in the impeachment of a president of the United States? Well, absolutely not. I mean, even even after being sworn in as, as a member of Congress, I never would have imagined that I would have been in that role. You know, obviously, as, as a lawyer and someone who's a former judge, you know, I, I've read about impeachments. You know, I know what the Constitution says. I know even the judges can be impeached. But that is not something that, that ever uh, had entered my mind and, and, frankly, never did until Nancy Pelosi, the speaker herself, asked me, she kind of, after a meeting uh, that we had with her about another topic, I think it was uh, dealing with some unaccompanied minors issues related to some detention centers. It was a meeting with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And after the meeting, she, she left her, her seat and came to me and just said something like, well, you haven't asked me about wanting to be an impeachment manager or asked me anything about that. And I said, no, I Trust your judgment. There's over 200 Democrats that you can pick from. I'm sure you'll pick the right person. And she says, well, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, I think we need to look at what the case needs to be and then pick lawyers, pick members that can help do that. I said, because this is very different than, than, than what I think of as a real trial. This seems to be more in the nature of, of appellate argument. So it would be someone who really is good and comfortable in the setting, someone who can make an argument and can really be persuasive versus, 
you know, like a hotshot trial lawyer because there's not going to be like a real trial with witnesses and things. I said, so I said, you, you got to pick the right team for what we're going to try to be doing. And she said, interesting. She said, so, so do you feel comfortable? I said, yeah, well, I, you know, I've been a judge. I've been a lawyer. I said, I, I feel comfortable walking into any courtroom. But of course, the United States Senate is not a courtroom. You know, uh, in fact, when we first walked on there, I just felt this awesome responsibility that, frankly, I just kind of stood there when we went, marched over there to, to present the articles of impeachment to the Senate. And I just thought, I just can't believe this. I am here, you know, to make a case to impeach the president of the United States. It was kind of like a, a one of those, well, holy baloney, I'm here. Um, so it's not anything that, that I saw. It's not anything that I ever thought of doing. The speaker asked me, and when she called me, I guess almost a week later, uh, that she wanted me to serve, I just simply said, Madam Speaker, if this is something you want me to do, of course I will do it. You mentioned uh, Speaker Pelosi going through basically how she was deciding to choose the members, and you mentioned the merits of the case. And I wanted to try and set the timeline here. So in April of 2019, the Mueller report came out. And before the Mueller report came out, there was pressure building by some in your caucus to begin impeachment proceedings for for various things. And in March, right before the Mueller report dropped, uh, Nancy Pelosi was quoted as saying, uh, quote, unless there's something so compelling and so overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country. And she added, he's just not worth it of Trump. So I'm guessing, considering you were an impeachment manager, from your perspective, what made Trump's extortion of Zelensky so much more compelling than his other transgressions of campaign finance, of not being willing to divest from his businesses despite being president of the United States, and also obstruction of justice, which Mueller out would eventually outline in his report? Why was Zelensky's call so different that he needed to be impeached? Well, because... It was on in his own words. I mean, there was a tape. I mean, it, there was, you know, in my view, clear and convincing evidence. And, you know, when, when, when Zelensky said, you know, and I forget the exact words, you know, that, that they needed, you know, help, for especially with their military defenses and that they needed some javelins. And, and then the president's response is, but I need a favor though, you know, that, that to me was, was, was like the crux of the matter that he was wanting, wanted a quid pro quo. He was saying, I'll do that for you, but you've got to do this for me. And what he wanted done for him was not anything that was in behalf and for the protection and for affirming his oath of office and, and his obedience to United States of America, it was something for him, something for his politics, someone that was a personal favor. Uh, so that's what made it so different. And I think that's when a lot of the public, I mean, I don't know if you remember that it, everything just kind of shifted like, oh my God, there it is. Because when you read, you know, I read the Mueller report. I mean, you know, I, I read it in preparation for the trial. And if you read it, you know, you kind of really had to keep track of all the characters. You had to keep track of who was doing what. So, and then he 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 never really gave us a solid finding. There was some things that there that we could really work with, but 
but the phone call, his own words, the transcript, that's clear and convincing. So I think that, that that's what made uh, the big difference. And when you look at, at, at the, the, the former twice impeached president, you know, in my view, he did all those three. And for him, it was D, all of the above, because he really, really never seemed to be focused on the good of the people and the good of our democracy and the good of the United States of America and, and the trust that we put in him in, in him being elected. You know, and I'm not saying I, because I obviously didn't vote for him, but in terms of Americans, I mean, he won the election. He was handed uh, a trust and he betrayed that public trust. And he seemed to be focused on doing that, in my view, almost every day. Every tweet was was another eye opener. Uh, so I think that that really made a difference is hearing it in its own words, seeing the, the transcript and seeing it right before you in real time. I would bet everything, whatever the president said, was in the best interest of our country. A whistleblower complaint is hearsay here. The whistleblower was not on the phone call. This guy wasn't on the call. Someone else told him about the call. Why did they pick this whistleblower to tell a hearsay story? A lot of these accusations have turned out to not be true. It looks to me like another deep state attack. Salem witch trials have more due process than this. They still are not providing the same kind of same kind of basic due process right. Secret interviews selective leaks. Is that appropriate to ask for a foreign government to interfere I, in the election? I don't imagine that's what he was doing. President Zelensky didn't do the statement. He didn't go out and make a statement. Uh, he's, he's committed to no specific type of investigation, so there is, there's been no linkage whatsoever. Quid pro quo here. The quid pro quo, in my judgment, is a red herring. I appreciate that, that we have a president who's very transparent about about his opinion. Well, I think it's per- perfectly appropriate to ask a foreign leader to look in potential, look into potential corruption. Did you initially think that you were going to get some bipartisan support out of the Republicans in the House when the in- eventual impeachment was voted on? Or did you know from day one, it's a non-starter, they're never going to view this uh, impartially? Well, you know, I'm one of those people that truly believes on listening to both sides and, and looking at the facts and then making a judgment. I don't think I got to the point where I was ready to proceed with impeachment until the, the, the full investigation, after we got the Mueller report, after we we heard from all the witnesses. You know, we heard from the former ambassador to Ukraine, the one that, uh, that Trump fired. You know, we heard from, you know, people who were there uh, because it was so compelling to hear from them and how he just obstructed and put barriers to anything that they were doing uh, because he just seemed to be, you know, in a completely opposite direction that you frankly wondered just whose interest he really was favoring. When you see now what's, what's erupted in Ukraine, you kind of like begin to finally kind of like, okay, well, now we understand why he was such a good friend uh, uh, and always uh, seemed to be saying such glowing things about, you know, Putin. And, and he, st- he still does to this day. He, he said Putin was a genius the way he attacked uh, Ukraine. And you have to wonder, you know, when he 
said, yes, I know you need this, but you, you know, I need a favor though. I mean, who really was, whose interest was he really protecting? Was it just his own personal interest or was there somebody else in the room? What were the most compelling pieces of evidence regarding Trump's abuse of power charge, Article 1 in the impeachment files? Uh, what did you hear that you were like, okay, this is, this is concrete, this is ironclad, this is what will convince the public in the Senate? Well, as I said before, the, the telephone call, uh, for sure, because it was in his own words, while he reported, we had a copy. You know, people could see that in real time. I found uh, Vindeman's testimony very, very compelling. In fact, I think he was one of the most persuasive uh, witnesses. But keep in mind that I didn't get to ask him questions. The impeachment managers didn't ask him questions. We were not allowed to call any witnesses. We weren't allowed to do any depositions. All we had was video of the testimony that they had presented to the Intelligence Committee, but not the Judiciary Committee. Uh, we had only had the a, a number of constitutional experts to so we could talk about the legal analysis and the legal backdrop. Because, you know, in my mind, you know, the setup of a trial was not what the ordinary American would expect of a trial. I think I said in my some of my remarks, I forget if it was the first day or the second day, you know, I used to train judges and I would tell them, you know, the first thing you've got to remember is that everybody deserves their day in court and everybody deserves their opportunity to cross-examine witnesses. That is not happening here. But yet, the 100, 100 senators were acting as jurors. So already, the deck was a little stacked against us. And we knew that coming in. So we, it was a strong case. And we were hopeful. Uh, we were hopeful that Romney and, and Collins, I think there was about two or three that we still thought from the Senate that, that we could convince in the end, only Senator Romney and only in one of the articles, you know, stood with us. But I think if we were to, to poll the American people, uh, they saw through it all. And that's the bottom line. He has done so much that has been against the interests of our country and continues to do that. I mean, speaking now about Hunter Biden and, and speaking so favorably of, of a war criminal. You know, I'll agree with the president. The man is a thug. And to see a former president seem to side with that thug rather than the, what our country is trying to do for, for saving a, a democracy is just incredible. It's totally incredible. Uh, Congresswoman, you talked about how strange this process was and how different it was from a normal courtroom. It is very unusual that one of the jurors would be a witness, Ron Johnson. It's hard to imagine another legal setting where someone could be both a witness to the events concerned and then serve on the jury. But let's talk about how you constructed the case as you presented them uh, the case to this jury, such as it was. Uh, we talked about assembling the team and what you brought to the team and what some of the other impeachment managers brought to the team. 
Could you tell us a little bit about how you divided the sections of the case that you were going to make to the Senate? How do you decide what topics would be assigned to which managers as you presented the case? Well, first of all, all those decisions really were handled. I mean, we did, we met every morning, you know, as part of our preparation. We met every morning during the entire trial. Sometimes we'd meet after to just kind of debrief and see if we needed to change anything. But it really was like a real trial. If, if you've ever been around a trial lawyer, it's intense. There's a lot of reading. There's very little sleep, maybe some eating. But the key was always to get stay hydrated. And the decisions and the the work, and we we trusted him implicitly, and I still do to this day, and it was left up to our lead impeachment manager, and of course, that's Adam Schiff. And he and and our counsel and together with, with the staff would go through you know, what we needed to accomplish the next day, and we'd sit around and, and decide if that was the strategy, there'd be some input. And then we'd look at everybody's skill sets. You know, they tended to give me items that were, you know, about evidence, about sort of courtroom stuff, and, and about, uh, I got a lot of the uh, Hunter Biden issues because there were all those, were, were, I mean, it was all the nature of oral arguments, Val Demings, because of her background as a, you know, sheriff and law enforcement, I mean, she got a lot of the element pieces of the case that had to do uh, about enforcement, that had to do about holding up to duty and honor. Uh, Jason Crow, because he was the veteran, I mean, he got that all the assignments that had to do more with with Ukraine and its trends and the military positioning and why they needed this and the background of, of all that. And, um, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, he's just the orator. You can, you can give him almost any assignment, but, but he always, he always stepped up and was kind of like sometimes like the, the closer, but right before Adam Schiff, who was always the one who kind of laid the groundwork together with, with, uh, Mr. Nadler, who was, of course, the chair of judiciary. So everybody had their strengths and kind of like their background um, that we really did prepare that way and, and, and had everything divided up by topic. I mean, my my trial notebook had tabs on probably about 20 or 30 potential topics every day that I had to be ready for in case they came up. So we were all at the table and when there was a topic that came up, if it was yours and your tab, then you were the one who got up. But before you did, we kind of always, and I don't know if you ever watched this, but we kind of would all lean in and, and just go, okay, that's Sylvia's. And then I would get up and do do the response. You know, and, and one time I remember that, that we leaned in and it was an issue about Hunter Biden and and Val said, well, it's part of mine because of this. And I said, well, it's part of mine because of this. And she said, it's okay, I'll take it. So she got up. Uh, there was one time that the topic was really also Adam Schiff's and Nadler's. And they both kind of got up and we had to quickly decide, no, let's let Adam do it. So everybody had their trial notebook. We we had our topics. We'd done our briefings. We'd, we'd been, you know, stayed up night reviewing our notes so we, we always kind of knew who would be doing what. And like like the Congress in, in, in all our committee hearings, we had our scripts, we had our notes. Uh, and those of us who are lawyers, I mean, you know, like I had like a trial notebook like I'm accustomed to. 
So regarding that preparation, Congresswoman, when you were crafting these different arguments or your 25 to 30 um, tabs for the day, how much of that process was focused on persuading individual GOP senators, so the jurors, uh, maybe instead of persuading the senators, persuading their constituents to provide some political pressure, or uh, if you if you were at a point where you didn't think there was going to be anything to flip, how much of this was just trying to outline a clear argument for the historical record and future generations that would dig into this impeachment? First and foremost was making sure we had a clear ar- argument and we were reminded every day and we reminded ourselves every day that we were talking to the American people, that that was the real audience. Uh, however, just in terms of numbers, it's just like any other trial. You, you look at your jury, you, you know the makeup, you know who you need to persuade because remember in a jury, you, you, you get a little sheet on every juror and you know their background, you know, and, and you know, you've had an opportunity to either strike them and keep them on the jury or not, but then you've got the group and you know who's what. And like, I always knew that it was important kind of look straight to sort of like middle left, because that's where Susan Collins and a couple of members that we thought maybe would be listening and maybe really would would be open to voting for us. And then I would really have to look way to the left because I knew that's where, where Mr. Romney sits. So that's what I did. I don't know if all the other members did, but but I knew who might be open to it. And and there was times when I would, you know, directly look at in, in their direction uh, to make sure that they would hear what I was saying. Uh, and I remember that particularly one because I know that that the Mr. Romney is is very uh, um, you know man of faith as I am, uh, and I had made some some arguments and and I had quoted something from the Bible, and um, and then when I did that, I purposely you know kind of looked his direction because I was hopeful that that he would listen and that that he would be persuaded, uh, and I don't know if it worked or not. But again, it's it's part of what you're learned as a lawyer to do and as a presenter is to know your audience and to, you know, try to connect with them. And that's what I try to do. And I think most of us did that in, in some uh, form or fashion. Congresswoman, when you were going through the components of the case, one thing that you mentioned was that military element, the element that Jason Crow focused on in presenting the case to the Senate. So this component is one that is very closely linked to current events because we now truly appreciate how important the security aid that the United States was giving to Ukraine is to Ukraine's independence and its ability to defend itself against attacks from Russia. So can you tell us a little bit more about what was in that package of military aid that the U.S. government tried to freeze in an effort to extort Zelensky for political favors? Tell us more about that aid and what was in it and why it was important to the Ukrainians. You know, I didn't know at the time what a javelin was. And I it's so close to to the words in Spanish, javelina. And I know what that is. And it's sort of like a like a wild pig. And, you know, and, and I knew that's not what they were asking for, obviously. I mean, I'm a country girl. I mean, I, I just I, I grew up poor and, you know, we'd go out and shoot cavalinas because we mix it with pork to make tamales. And that's not what they were talking about. But, you know, 
it was part of the package and it was a, a great number that they needed. In fact, you know, we've we've given them a lot of that and, and, and so much more in, in, in humanitarian aid, economic aid and and military aid in this last couple of packages that, that we have voted on. Jason Crow just had a really, really great way of presenting that and presenting it with such authority because, you know, he was a he was an army ranger. He was out there, he he served, he knows. And so when when Jason Crow spoke about those things, we all listened because he was our expert. And I think the tragedy is that that even though the former twice impeached president knew how desperately Ukraine needed that, he just didn't do it. I mean, here's this one guy who didn't want to give them the the military weapons and defense weapons that they needed. And now here we roll over forward you know, what is it, two years later, and that's what they really need to defend themselves now. And then you remember the Mueller report and all the things about misinformation and how the Russians were really out there trying to help Donald Trump get get elected, and it was clear to everybody that Putin wanted the twice-impeached former president to win. Now you kind of wonder, well, Maybe he wanted him to win because it would have been easier for him because Trump Trump would have never been able to get an alliance of all of our NATO allies and the European Union and everyone to come on board to help us on this issue. I mean, I cannot imagine Trump being able to accomplish what Joe Biden has been able to accomplish in putting such a strong coalition together in fighting Putin. Some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country, and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. The unfortunate truth is that Russia was the foreign power that systematically attacked our democratic institutions in 2016. In the course of this investigation, I would ask that you please not promote politically driven falsehoods that so clearly advance Russian interests. As Republicans and Democrats have agreed for decades, Ukraine is a valued partner of the United States, and it plays an important role in our national security. And as I told the committee last month, I refuse to be part of an effort to legitimize an alternate narrative that the Ukrainian government is a US adversary and that Ukraine, not Russia, attacked us in 2016. These fictions are harmful even if they're deployed for purely domestic political purposes. When we are consumed by partisan rancor, we cannot combat these external forces as they, as they seek to divide us against each other, degrade our institutions and destroy the faith of the American people in our democracy. So, Congresswoman, you, you're describing Trump's attitudes about Ukraine, and a lot of this was influenced by the people that he associated with. He hired Paul Manafort as his campaign manager, who was later convicted for crimes related to Ukraine, kleptocracy. Uh, he listened to Rudy Giuliani, who was working with two gentlemen who have now been convicted of crimes related to uh, Ukraine and uh, Russian money that they were smuggling into U.S. politics uh, could you talk a little bit about the people that Trump associated with and what they were doing in Ukraine and how this was influencing American policy and the American government's attitudes about that country? Well, you know, again, I, it, you know, this is almost, you know, outside of my realm of 
jurisdiction in terms of committees that I serve on now. And, and it, it's, you know, when I was going through the impeachment trial, I was just focused on the Mueller report. I was focused on on the phone call and I was focused on the, the things in front of me. But now, as I reflect back and, and seeing what is going on, it just really, really makes you think twice about what Trump and, and, and uh, uh, remember, Giuliani was over there early on. I mean, Giuliani was almost given the responsibility for going over there and making sure that they, they fired the, you know, the ambassador because she was in their way. You know, they didn't want her there. They weren't very, you know, diplomatic about getting rid of a diplomat. So I think it was all part of their scheme. And I'm now I'm wondering if, if some of, of this was Trump just doing what Putin wanted him to do. And, you know, there's been a lot of speculation in, and I don't know if we'll ever, you know, get the, the whole story. All I can tell you is my personal opinion, because that's all it is. But I think that what happened in Ukraine with that phone call and what ha- was all part of the what I would consider the bidding that the twice impeached former president was doing uh, in behalf of Putin and, and against the interests of our country. So, Congresswoman, we've seen that with the full scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, certainly attitudes across America have hardened against Vladimir Putin in favor of Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, there, there's like this kind of Putin wing of the GOP, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Madison Cawthon. They are definitely in their own corner with the white nationalists and the other people that they support and support them. But the main mainstream GOP has also very, very much so hardened against Russia. So I'm wondering, considering the current context, uh, in your discussions with your GOP colleagues, are any of them reconsidering how they view Trump's actions during that first impeachment? And do you think if there were theoretically uh, this trial were to have happened under a similar context to what we're experiencing now, uh, that maybe some of them would have voted to go ahead and impeach Trump? No, I, I think they're they're looking at the the current situation just for its current situation. None of that is really, you know, spilling over to any other issue or any other vote. I, I don't see that. Uh, and, you know, for example, I mean, the bipartisanship that you see on this and, and almost anything related to Ukraine, it doesn't spill over to anything else. It's it's very narrow. And, and if you look at, at what they're doing with what I call the effects of the war, you know, the higher gas prices, the, the higher, you know, uh, food prices, all that is so directly related to the war. Uh, and, and, and quite frankly, we're, we're going to have uh, probably, you know, higher food shortages than we even have gas shortages because, you know, you know, Putin is just not letting any grain or any of the seeds and things that they export anywhere. So there's going to be a huge food shortage, probably my guess is in the last two or three months. Uh, first in Europe and in, in, in Africa and, and, you know, across the pond, if you will. But it's eventually going to hit us even harder. But they're not blaming Putin. They're blaming Biden. You know, they'll, they'll, and when they talk about the war, they talk, you know, against Putin, but never really for Biden and for his leadership on the war. And more importantly, his leadership in keeping 
that allies together. Never have we seen so many allies come together and develop a consensus on almost every single move. You know, they keep talking about, you know, we, we need the, the fly zone, you know, sealed. You know, we can't do that alone. we got to make sure that we, we work with our allies and we do the right thing for everybody. But but there are some hardliners in the GOP who think we should have already done it. They, some of them think we should have already sent them all the planes that they want, whether or not it will escalate the war and, and put us in a in a horrible situation with China and Russia. So it doesn't spill over, and they're hardliners, and they join us on just the the war itself and sending them the equipment and the humanitarian aid. And I'm I'm just I'm going to tell you this: I'm real concerned about whether we're going to be able to hold everyone together when it comes to humanitarian aid and dealing with the millions and millions of people that are being displaced. I think the number now is 4 million. I mean, and and 90% of the people displaced are women and children. There will be refugees in, in Poland, but there will also be refugees all over the world. Will we be able to hold you know, our allies together to make sure that we provide the, the care, the the work, the, the education, the health care, the housing for all these refugees that are being displaced that, that they don't know if they'll ever go back to their husbands, their fathers, their brothers, their cousins. And I, I know that I ask the question whenever, every time I can, are we going to be able to pledge the same amount of money that we're spending on the arms side and the weapon side on the humanitarian side because we we have to take care of all those those displaced people and there's going to come a time that you know it may be polar remember what's happened with other refugees after a while somebody says no all i want is hundred thousand and other country will say no all i can take is so much we cannot do that you know justice work together to help them defend themselves we're going to have to stick together to make sure that they can feed themselves, house themselves, and be productive in a new country, no matter which country they choose to go to. We're going to go to the audience. So we're going to start with Shanette. Shanette, over to you. Thanks so much. I know you talked about the fact that um, the Republicans have not given credit to Joe Biden for building, um, you know, for his role in helping strengthen NATO and putting together the coalition um, in support of Ukraine. Um, but I'm wondering if in at, once this conflict is over and we've moved on and we get to hopefully by 2024, um, you know, Ukraine is not still a, a war zone. Um, but I'm wondering if what looks like Trump as the sort of, um, you know, certainly all polling suggests that he's the leader of um, any kind of nomination if he were to want to run for for real for election again um how do you think the republicans will reconcile the the need for supporting donald trump in 2024 given his support of of putin during this conflict we are going to be brutally honest with you and this is again just my own personal opinion it's i don't think it's going to bother them at all (laughs) i mean I mean, just look at, at what's going on with the January 6th uh, commission. You know, they didn't want the commission. They're still in denial that anything really happened in terms of the insurrection. They have forgiven him for all that. They forgive him for everything because 
I frankly have never seen so many grown men afraid of one grown man. He just seems to be able to survive all this. And uh, I don't think it's going to matter to them if if that's going to be their nominee. And, and most of them support him. They seek his endorsement. They made the pilgrimage to Margo Lago to try to get his endorsement, his backing, his money, his supporters. So I think that's going to continue on. And if he ends up being the nominee, they're, they're going to forget the insurrection. They're going to forget both impeachment trials. They're going to forget him calling Putin, you know, a genius. They're going to forget all of this and just go with him again, just like they, they did the first time. All right. Thank you very much, Jeanette. We are going to go next to Ab. Essentially, I'm, I'm trying to ask, um, given the uh, amount of, I, I guess we can say, open corruption that we saw during the Trump administration regarding, you know, things, the violations of the Hatch Act and emoluments uh, and so on and so forth, and knowing that our institutions are pretty much just run not necessarily on uh, an actual, or essentially run on good faith, right? And there's not really anything there to prevent a president or administration from doing anything so long as he has the backing of of a political party to essentially ignore and deflect. Are there conversations or, or legislation being drawn up to essentially create a more stronger uh, reinforcement of our institutions? Or is this something that's just going to kind of just stay as it is and just remain uh, based on goodwill? Well, I can tell you that, you know, I was totally frustrated sometimes, especially as a member of the Judiciary Committee, that I just felt like, you know, there was not much that we could do. And even though we did pass, you know, some bills, particularly the one that comes to mind is our House Resolution, I mean, House Bill 1 that dealt with, you know, reforming the election process to try to build up our the integrity of our elections to to do away with, with dark money, to do away with, you know, some of the, the conflicts of interest that, that, that happen. And then it just sits and dies in the Senate. Uh, remember, you know, in this business, it, it really does take two to tango. We've got to have the, the Senate and agree with the Congress or, or, or not at least present a bill that we can conference on and, and, and negotiate and, and do. But, we just were not able, especially with McConnell's leadership, able to get anything passed in any reform or anything that we wanted to do. It's, it's totally frustrating, and it still is, on voting rights, on civil rights, and a number of other issues, because even though it's 50-50, we can't get past the Senate. So... You know, all I can say to you, it's a, it's a work in progress, and, and we have to keep fighting and doing what we can because it is about protecting our democracy. It's about protecting the oath that each one of us takes, and it's about making sure that we have, you know, I always say that democracy is a gift that we give from one generation to the next. And if we're not careful— this political party called the Republican Party that appears to be more of a cult these days is going to continue about the business of changing that to the degree that if if another insurrection occurs and they succeed in any way, it will destroy our democracy. And I think that 
if we don't do enough to stop it now, it may happen in my lifetime, and that just makes me want to work harder and harder every day. Yeah, we had David Gergen on, and he was very concerned about uh, uh, you know le- some at legal overthrowing of the Electoral College being what leads to uh, the next coup. It's the the way they they have battered and bruised and heckled and threatened election officials in so many states because they know it all starts there is with the states and the state legislatures that make the voting laws. I mean, I saw that in Texas. I mean, they succeeded in suppressing so many votes. In my own county, there was at least, I think it was like 15,000 votes that were cast that just weren't counted because the paperwork wasn't filled right because they changed it all. And they're doing that bit by bit in so many different states that are critical. They're finding, yeah, yeah. Every, they're finding every way and every angle. What is your outlook of the institutions of American democracy? And are they strong enough to withstand a potential second or third assault on them from somebody like Trump or Trump himself? I think, I think we're on the cusp of really continuing to being at risk. And right now, I, I you know, number one, I totally support the nomination of, of our Supreme Court nominee. I think she's going to, she was an excellent choice. I think she will be confirmed. But I do have a concern right now as to where the court is going and the reputation and the trust of the court, especially in light of some of the revelations about Justice Thomas and his conflict of interest and failure to recuse himself on some issues that maybe he should have. And the bottom line is this. I've told you all, you know, I came from a lower jurisdiction court, but I had a canon of ethics. I had rules that I had to follow that were prescribed by the state, uh, by my city, uh, and then the canon of ethics for judges. That's one of the reasons I stopped being a judge, because I felt muzzled. There was too many rules of, of things that you could or could not do to avoid the appearance of impropriety, to avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest, to avoid any question of your integrity of looking at everything based on the law and the facts and not be persuaded by any outside element. But yet here we hear of a Supreme Court justice whose wife is is so close to him and, and represents, on a consulting basis, uh, some groups that have briefs and, and do work within the Supreme Court, uh, that she exchanged text messages with, with the chief of staff on, on the day of the insurrection, yet he's heard cases about the insurrection. You know, those are really serious concerns. And I, I'm certainly a proponent of, of, you know, a judge is a judge. And, and if one judge is going to have to abide by some canons of ethics, I think all of them should. Uh, and I think our Supreme Court is going to have to really take stock and, and do a better job of policing itself, because that's what we're expected them to do. And I'm not sure that that they're doing it if you look at at some of the things around this questionable behavior in terms of the Thomases. And and secondly, you know, we gotta be ready in case there is another insurrection that we can really, really make sure that we can defend ourselves and do what we have to do. I mean, I was there on the floor, I was there on the floor, I, I got, you know, evacuated 
And I stayed till the very end and didn't leave the the floor till later, till till about 4.30 in the morning the next day because I wanted to make sure that the process worked. And it worked this time, but anything could happen that would keep it from working next time. We could next time have a vice president who listened to those lawyers uh, uh, under the Trump administration that said, oh, no, you can do this. And yes, you can refuse to certify. You can delay it for two weeks and do an audit. You know, all of those things could happen again. So we have to be ready. And the only way we can be ready is by electing people who take an oath of office, understand it, and always put that first. It's about making sure that you always put the interests of the country first uh, and that, that we are there to uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States and that we're there to make sure that we protect our democracy. It's the gift that we keep for our children and our grandchildren. So that's what I would tell you. It's, it's on the cusp. We've got to do, do more to protect our democracy. That's all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Congresswoman Garcia, to our audience for their questions, and to you for being here. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with real audience questions. For information on how to join us in past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Wednesday featuring Congressman Tony Gonzalez, who's also from Texas, about the U.S. immigration system. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team, thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon. Thank you.